Good morning, Christ Prez. You know, a lot of people outside the church resist Christianity because they see it as too narrow. And passages like this one are fuel for the fire. Let me highlight three different but closely related ways we might feel the weight of this objection about narrowness. First, the way. How can Christians believe that their religion is the only way? Isn't it extremely arrogant to make a claim like that? How could you possibly say that Christianity is the one and only way to God? How could any religion make that kind of claim? You know, to say that one religion is the way sounds incredibly narrow, and it runs up against a very popular view in our culture today, which is that all religions are basically the same. You know, they might differ in their details, but they share the same core, and they are all headed in the same direction. Oprah gives voice to this view when she says, one of the biggest mistakes we make is to believe there is only one way. There are many diverse paths leading to God. A common way of illustrating this is to picture a mountain with all sorts of little trails and roads leading to the top. And the roads represent all the different religions and philosophies and worldviews. And at the top is ultimate truth, ultimate reality. And someday uh, we'll all get there. But in the meantime, to insist that one religion is the way, not just a way, is to create all kinds of unnecessary division and often even oppression and violence. That's the view. And look, just watch the news if you doubt that claiming to have truth can lead to oppression and violence. I mean, much better to live and let live and to acknowledge that your way is just one of many. There are many roads leading to the same destination. All religions are equally valid paths to God. So that, that's, the, that's the kind of claim and objection that's being made. How, how might we wrestle with this? Well, you know, I think a good place to start is to acknowledge that, yes, religion often does create division and has often been at the root of violence and injustice. You know, whenever you say, I've got the truth and you don't, I'm on the true path and you're not, that's going to lead to a kind of feeling of superiority over others, which often leads to separation and division and then eventually oppression and violence. It's very easy for the people who don't share your beliefs to become the enemy. The danger is there. And you can see that story play out over and over again throughout history. Or you can just take a look at some of the political discourse in our country right now. But now is, is the best response to simply say, okay, I guess every way is equally valid after all. I don't think so. And here's why. You know, the assertion that all religions are equally valid paths to God is itself a religious claim, which is based entirely on faith. And, and so the question we need to ask is, why should we believe it's true? Behind the assertion is a kind of intuition that it's arrogant to claim that your way is the true way, that your path is the one path. The objection is, how could you possibly see the whole picture? You know, there's a classic little parable to illustrate the point. You've heard it before. I've probably shared it before. A group of blind men are summoned by a king, and the king asks them all to describe for him an elephant that he has. And so they all take hold of the elephant, and they begin to describe the reality of the elephant. What's the elephant like? Well, it's short and thin and has some hair on the end. That's what the blind man says who is holding the tail of the elephant. But another blind man has grabbed onto the elephant's leg, and he says, oh no, the elephant is like a tree trunk. And there's no hair. Another blind man has hold of the elephant's trunk and he says, way more flexible than a tree trunk, bro. But I also don't feel any hair, just some slimy stuff. And another is touching the side of the elephant. 
I have no idea what y'all are talking about. This thing is huge and flat. Well, you can see the point. Each one thinks he's describing the whole elephant, but he only experiences a part of the elephant. So each of them is right, but each of them is also wrong. Each of them has some of the truth, but they're wrong to claim that it's the whole truth. They all see part of the reality, but none sees the full picture. And the point is, uh, religions are like that, all grasping at the truth and describing their truth in their own ways. Now, the problem with this illustration is that the king has a privileged position and can see the whole elephant, right? The only way he knows the blind men are failing to describe the whole elephant is that he sees it. You can only know the, the blind men are blind if you can see. And the point is this. You know, we can only say all religions only have part of the truth if we assume we're in a position to see the whole truth. See, it's just as much a claim about ultimate reality. Who could possibly say that all religions are just different ways to the same destination, just different paths to the same mountaintop? Only someone with a bird's eye view of the whole landscape, only someone with a superior vantage point can make that kind of claim. It has the appearance of humility but you see it's just as exclusive. Well, we're already touching on the second way we might feel the weight of this question about narrowness. Christians claim to have found not just the way, but the truth. And isn't that arrogant? You know, shouldn't everyone be able to, to determine their own truth? Wouldn't it be better to embrace agnosticism about matters of ultimate truth? You might say, I just don't know what the ultimate truth is. Well, fair enough, but here's my concern. Too often, I don't know what the absolute truth is becomes I can't know what the absolute truth is or it's impossible to know what the absolute truth is. And that's a problem because as soon as we say it's impossible to know absolute truth, we're making a claim about absolute truth. We're doing the very thing we say can't be done. And it would be fair for someone to ask us in response, well, how do you know absolute truth can't be known? Can truth about ultimate reality be known? Well, remember this illustration. Uh, if I ask you to tell me what color I'm thinking about right now, um, you can't do it. Part of the reason you can't do it is because you're listening to a recording. You have no way of speaking to me. But um, you also can't do it because uh, there's no way for you to know what's going on inside my mind. You could guess, but you couldn't be sure. And I think a lot of people assume absolute truth is like that. We can guess about it, but we have no basis for confidence. You don't know what color I'm thinking about because you don't have access to my thoughts. But look, is there a way you could know what color I'm thinking of? Sure there is. I could tell you. I could reveal it to you. I'm not going to, but I could if I wanted to. Well, that's what Christians believe has happened with ultimate reality. They believe it has been revealed. There's no way we could ha have known it apart from being told. You see, having knowledge of ultimate truth is possible if there's someone there who can reveal it to us. But believing the revelation would require faith. And for some people, that's the problem, faith. You know, there's a desire for knowledge of the truth that doesn't require faith. But remember, all knowledge actually requires some measure of faith. We're always basing our most foundational beliefs on things we can't ultimately prove, but that we have to just trust. 
anytime someone doubts the truth of Christianity, um, they're embracing some other belief by faith. If you were to doubt all of your beliefs, you wouldn't be able to believe anything at all, and then you wouldn't be able to doubt the truth of Christianity. Well, that's kind of confusing. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He writes this, quote, You cannot go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond is opaque. But if you saw through the garden too, see, if you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. Close quote. To see through everything is not to see. And it actually can't be done. I mean, we're always assuming that something unprovable is true. Everyone makes truth claims. There's no escaping it. And so the question is not whether you're going to embrace something as true. The question is, what will you embrace as the truth? Well, there's a third way we might feel the weight of the question about narrowness. You know, sometimes we worry that embracing the Christian faith will make our lives smaller and less free. We think embracing Christianity will mean having a narrower, more constricted life, a life that isn't really full and free. So often, we conceive of freedom as the absence of restrictions. Freedom is, is uh, complete autonomy, the, the ability to chart our own course, the absence of authority. Now, it's a popular conception of freedom, but as soon as we reflect on that idea, we can think of all kinds of examples where this isn't true at all. You know, freedom to drive a car depends on submitting to the truth of the lines on the road. Freedom for a fish to be a fish depends on it staying restricted to the water, the environment for which it was made. Freedom to live a healthy life depends on, among many other things, submitting to the truths of nutrition and exercise. Musicians are free to make beautiful music, not because they've cast off all restrictions, but because they've submitted to the disciplines of daily practice, uh, usually over the course of many, many years. A professional musician is free to play his instrument, not because he's thrown off all authority, but precisely because he submitted himself to authority. Has the authority been restricted? Well, yeah, in a way it has, insofar as it has required certain courses of action, right? Like practicing and reading music and following the instructions of the conductor, listening to his fellow musicians. But the restriction is for the sake of freedom. It's for the sake of allowing the musician to thrive as a musician. Like, how absurd would it be to sit down with an orchestra and say, you all are so narrow. I'm free. I'm going to completely disregard the notes on the page, and I'm just going to play whatever I want. See, that would be freedom uh, for chaos. It would be freedom to stink. In order for musicians to do what they're meant to do, in order to create music, beautiful music, they need to submit to authority, not reject it. And we can say the same thing about human life in general. In order for human beings to flourish as human beings, in order for us to really live fully and abundantly and freely, we need to submit to truth. True life is not opposed to the truth. True life, a life of freedom and flourishing, actually depends on submitting to the truth. So those are three ways we might feel the objection about narrowness, but I hope you've noticed 
maybe that all of this is actually beside the point. I've been talking about Christianity, but this series, remember, is not about Christianity. We haven't titled this Christianity According to Christians. We're asking about Jesus. Who is Jesus according to Jesus? The Bible nowhere teaches that Christianity is the way, the truth, and the life. It never says that Christianity is the way to the Father. It's Jesus Christ who makes the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one who says, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, the way, the truth, and the life is not a system or a religion or a philosophy or a worldview or an ideology. It's a person. What difference does that make? Well, all the difference in the world. Because when this person, Jesus, says that he is the way, he's actually on his way to the cross. He doesn't say, I'm here to show you the path that you need to take to get to God. He doesn't say, I'm giving you a map to the mountaintop. He's saying, I'm the way that God is getting to you. He doesn't say, here's how you do it. Here are the rules you have to obey. Here are the laws you have to keep. And then maybe if you live a life that's good enough, you'll make it to the top of the mountain. He says, you've totally failed to live the life you need to live. And because I love you, I'm picking up this cross and I'm carrying it to the top of that hill. And I'm dying there for you. Jesus isn't the way for us to get to God, you see, family. Jesus is the way God comes to us in this person, full of grace and truth and love. And when this person, Jesus, says that he's the truth, he's not giving us a weapon to oppress others with. He's offering himself to us to be known in a personal relationship. We often worry, with good reason, that claims to have absolute truth will be used to oppress and exploit others. We've seen that happen again and again throughout history. We've seen people use their understandings of truth to beat others into submission. We've seen truth wielded to force conformity in beliefs and behaviors. But what if truth is this person, Jesus, who lays down his life for us precisely because we don't believe the same things he does, or behave how he behaves? What if at the heart of reality is a man who lays down his life for his enemies? And what if you bring this absolute truth into the center of your life? Will that make your life narrow? Will it make you less free? Or will it allow you finally to live? Is Christianity narrow? Listen, It certainly has been, and it often is too narrow. But who cares about Christianity? What about Jesus Christ? Is Jesus too narrow? You know, to the extent that we see him and understand the claims he's making, we won't be asking, is he too narrow? We'll be asking, is he too wide? You know, that's what the religious leaders in Jesus' day were saying. They would see Jesus eating and drinking with liars and thieves and prostitutes, and they would say, this is too much. They would see Jesus extending hospitality and welcome to people who were way outside the bounds of the religious leader's love, and they would say, this man Jesus is too much. 
He's too inclusive. His embrace is too broad. How broad is the embrace of Jesus Christ? Well, look, if you have, if you have the elements before you, um, see, you're invited to the Lord's table. You. And in fact, all over the world today, sinners are being invited to share a meal with God. People who don't believe the right things or behave in the right ways are being welcomed by the Father, Son, and Spirit into this beautiful communion of love. Does that sound narrow? Restrictive? Well, in a way, it's very narrow. Let me go back to C.S. Lewis for a moment. In, in one of his fictional works, The Silver Chair, it's part of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, C.S. Lewis tells the story, and in the story, a character named Jill has entered into Narnia, and after wandering for some time in search of water to drink, she encounters the lion Aslan, who is lying between her and a stream, which is, which is there running with this um, clear, refreshing water, and she hopes to drink from that stream. And I'll read what happens next. This is Jill thinking, she says, If I run away, that lion will be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours, and the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. The voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion.
You see, family, there is no other stream. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. That's how exclusive he is. There is no one else. But do you see also how inclusive he is? Look, anyone and everyone is invited to come, to come and eat, to come and drink, to come and be satisfied, to come and find true life, even you. Believe the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.